Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby and welcome to this free edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today we ask, would Jeremy Corbyn take us back to the woes of the 70s? Is that why some people, however much they see the current UK government in disarray, would never vote Labour as long as Jeremy Corbyn is leading it? Well, that is the big fear, isn't it, for many people that a Corbyn government in the UK with its unapologetic socialism a word that seems to be a bit of a swear word these days, would see us return to the 1970s. That's a period that many of us remember, if we're old enough, for rampant double-digit inflation, a three-day week, strikes left, right and centre. And James Callaghan, you might remember, had to go cap in hand to the International Monetary Fund for a bailout to bolster Britain's flagging economy. So, Corbyn. We know he's a, another lefty that's going to return us to the dark ages. That's the argument, isn't it? But when you consider it, a lot of his policies are mild compared to what was acceptable in the 70s. We've moved on from what was acceptable in the 70s. Vinyl jumpsuits were acceptable in the 70s. Enormous wide-collared shirts, bell-bottom trousers. The 70s is very different to what Jeremy Corbyn is proposing. And even if he was picking up everything from the 70s policy-wise... Is that a bad thing? Is it actually any worse than the austerity measures that the Tories have been so tied to? Well, tied to until they discovered they actually need to change their approach to try and retain power. Now it doesn't seem that important at all. And yet, you know, there's lots of articles that claim the 70s was a period of loony left-wingers that resulted in class hatred, Soviet-style stagnation. Why would we want to return to that for, for many the whole 70s situation was resolved with the election of Margaret Thatcher. She's a hero to many people. She brought in good old-fashioned austerity, privatisation, union bashing, just what was needed to get the country back on its feet, provided, of course, you ignore the fact that the number of people unemployed in Britain was to double during the Thatcher years. So could Britain return to socialism or is it a dirty word? Well, one of our listeners, Brian Arps, suggested it would be good to unpack the 70s experience since that experience coincided with a Labour government in the UK, which is now a major reason for Labour's woes even today. Maybe if the 70s hadn't happened, maybe Jeremy Corbyn would be Prime Minister today. So, uh, Steve King, let's let's start with the S-word, first of all, uh, the, the socialism word. Uh, is it a dirty word? And, and is Corbyn a socialist? Um, this is one of the... Um, being a re- recent arrival in the country, I think three years, I haven't had a history of listening to Corbyn's speeches and so on, as, as many people many people have had. And uh, so I, I, I get told all the time by some of my uh, sort of centre-left uh, Labourite uh, oriented friends and certainly quite a few on the Tories party as well. I've got friends in both camps. Um, but he was a, a classic old trot, which means Trotskyist, yeah. which is a particular sect of Labourites. Now, I've got a bit of personal experience with trots, and, and believe me, they gave me the trots because I, at Sydney University, I'd run into these characters uh, handing out leaflets outside every bloody left wing demonstration, and every right one for that matter, as well as they had any guts. Um, 
and they were the most boring people on the planet. If you wanted to actually kill a party, you'd invite a trot. Um, so I had a particular personality profile that I expected of somebody being accused of being a Trotskyist. And frankly, Jeremy Corbyn did not fit it. Um, seen him a couple of times, the live, seen him um, on the TV regularly, uh, certainly seen him during this election campaign. And um, he'd be banned from most Trots parties that I know for having too much personality. But there's, so a, big di- there's a big difference, there's a big difference isn't there? I mean, uh, tr- tr- between, between being a Trot or a Trotskyite and uh, being a socialist, though, isn't there? I mean, socialists is... And the reason I ask that question is, uh, in the 70s, I think, in Britain, it was fine to say that you supported socialism. These days, it's a swear word. Socialism in the 70s, I think, was... Um, or even since, in the, in the 80s, if you weren't a Thatcher supporter and you were sort of, like, talking about the days of socialism, you would... Socialism meant that you looked after all rather than just a few... Now, there's a handy tagline yeah. that Prime Minister used recently. And that's, if you actually look back and see what Karl Marx was arguing for on the Communist Manifesto, it was effectively uh, universal suffrage, uh, education for all children, um, and, uh, and, and forms of social security. So what we apply as labels uh, today and historically are very, very different things. And uh, like the Communist Manifesto, apart from the fact that it's all expecting eventual collapse of capitalism, uh, what it actually was arguing for in terms of social demands uh, would fit actually these days pretty much not just in what Corbyn wrote, but uh, uh, with a few modifications, the Red Tory stuff that brought, um, brought May unstuck in this last election. So uh, in the long-winded answer to your question, but I think I'd regard him as the tightly democratic socialist, which means somebody who believes that capitalism... Uh, is going to continue on indefinitely, but needs to be behave in a more democratic fashion, and that a large part of that is making up for the tendency for capitalism to accumulate wealth at the top and not distribute it to the bottom. Um, now, this was something which would have been, uh, obviously, it would have been sacrilege in the 1970s to argue that, because that was the heyday of Milton Friedman and uh, let the market rip. Now we're in the post-Picketty era, and the data strongly confirms the argument that wealth has, for whatever reason, has accumulated at the top, does not just distribute it back down, and there is a need for, for some form of non-market-based trans, uh, trans, uh, money transfer stroke money creation systems to redistribute that money back to the, uh, to the mass. So I think he fits in that democratic socialist tendency, but certainly not the old-fashioned, let's abolish capitalism type. Well, you know, when I was growing up, the term mixed economy was used a great deal, as though that was a great thing, and mm. capitalism unfettered was a, was a bad thing. That term, mixed economy, seems to have dropped by the wayside. Well, it's come back again, because, again, what we had for the last, uh, certainly the last 20 years, is a belief in let the market rip, deregulate everything. Uh, this is one reason I'm leaving the uh, university sector myself next year, because the the, the impact of attempting to turn everything into a market has been particularly destructive in universities, in my opinion, my experienced opinion. Um, so we, we, certainly now, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, when the people who were running the economy were strict believers in the free market, uh, the fact that it has worked out so badly for them uh, now means that what was out of favour is back in favour again. Right, so let's have a look at uh, some of Corbyn's policies and see whether... Yeah if they were enacted as uh, laid out in the manifesto, would that take us back to the 1970s? And to do that, obviously, we need to uh, look at what happened in the 1970s. First of all, uh, rampant inflation. Uh, we mm. had that uh, hitting 24% mm. in 1975. But, um, you know, a lot, a lot of that was to do with oil prices, wasn't it? Well, if you, if you reproduce the data for different countries and, and take a look and see what you get, 
uh, it's the same basic pattern, and that is, wait for it, I hate to say it, my favourite topic, there was a debt bubble, a mm. uh, private debt bubble back in the 1970s, and that private debt bubble gave you a booming economy from, in England's case from 1972 to the beginning of 1973, and then it plunged. And this is a pattern which is repeated around the world, including Australia, of course, where I was based, and, uh, and the USA. So our very first Minskian crisis effectively occurred not in the uh, 19, in 2008, but way, way earlier in the 1970s. Right, but it's, it's very different, isn't it, this time? Because we don't have a problem with inflation. I mean, uh, wages aren't going up uh, because uh, spending power isn't going up. Uh, back then, inflation, as I said, was, it was a big issue, 24% in 1975. So what, what, was, what was so different? What it translated is, was, was we, had a, we began the night of the, the post-war period with the lowest level of private debt, not quite in the history of capitalism, but certainly in the last, uh, in the, say, 30 or 40 years beforehand. So you had a very lowly, lowly levered uh, private system where borrowing money was not a problem because the amount, of, the amount of servicing you had to do compared to the amount of extra cash you got to spend from borrowing the money was quite tiny. And we had a 50-year period of what um, uh, Minsky called um, financial uh, tranquility. So a period where credit was such a small part of the um, demand for the economy that it could grow and add, add to that demand without causing a breakdown. And, uh, and this was the, um, the phenomenon that applied globally. So we had a very tranquil economy, but credit growing, debt, debt growing faster than GDP, private debt. And then around 1966 is when Hyman Minsky said that was the transition date from financial stability to financial fragility. And that was in, in America's case, of course, he, he was focused on American data like mine was an Australian when I was back in that country. And he identified, I think, the failure of the Penn State uh, Bank in, in 1966. If anybody's ever been to New York, you'll get the Penn State Railway. It was a related, related set of companies, I think. And uh, so that financial crash was the first time the Federal Reserve had to intervene to rescue a financial institution in the tw- in the in the 20 years since the uh, since the Second World War ended in America, then you had so, so Minsky says 66 is when you get this defining break between a period of financial stability and financial fragility. And to give a picture of that from the UK point of view, in 1966 the credit, which is the annual change in private debt, was 8% of GDP. Uh, in 1966 June which is similar six months later, it had fallen to minus one and a half percent. So the financial shock that was that Minsky identified back in 1966 was something that hit, hit the UK as well as hitting, um, hitting the uh, America. And then if you fast forward to the 1970s, you had a period of a boom period again with expanding credit causing, causing a boom globally. And then in the UK's case, credit went from 3% of GDP in the middle of 1971 to 15% of GDP in 1973. And it then plunged from that to 4%. So you had pretty much a 10% of GDP level of demand disappear in the economy. And that coincided, and this comes down to the whole issue about oil prices, uh, but it predates the oil crisis. This is the thing that people people don't, uh, don't actually understand their historical memories 
have confused the timing of these things. At the same time, Britain went from having a trade surplus or current account surplus of 2% of GDP in 1972 to minus 4% by 1974. Right. I mean, we were borrowing less now, in those days, weren't we? I mean, the total amount of private debt was a lot lower. But I guess that when we pull back on how much that increase is increasing by each year, uh, then, th- well, yeah, then that has it, the effect. It, it, yeah, the level, the level of debt was lower. The level of debt in that stage was about actually 50% of GDP. Uh, it was much, much lower than it is now. But the, the, change, the change in debt went from being plus 15 to plus 4 and that is, you know, pretty much 10% of GDP drop in demand, which is pretty significant. And at the same time, over the period from 1972 to 1974, the current account went from plus two, which stimulates demand, to minus four. So you had effectively about one-sixth of GDP disappear over that two-year period. No, but it's not one-sixth of GDP, one-sixth of effective demand because of the fall in credit combined with, at the same time, the fall in the export surface for the UK. And in response, government spending went from 1% of GDP, the change in government debt, went from 1% of GDP in 1972 to 13% in 1976. Now, this is a classic case where if you... That's what you actually see. We get reported all the time what the credit... what the the government debt story is, what's happening in the government budget and so on and so forth. You don't get reported that the trade surplus surplus has gone from 2% positive to more 4% negative. You certainly didn't get reported because people weren't even recording the data back then. This has all been historically uh, uh, extracted from information by the uh, Bank of England since the financial crisis. You didn't get the news that credit went from 15% of GDP to 4% of GDP. So in the middle of all this stuff, the only thing you saw was effectively the symptom caused by the other two factors. The symptom was government spending rising, but the causes were a collapse in credit and a collapse in Britain's export performance. So how much of that can be accounted for by government policy? Because we've seen a rise in, uh, in, in private debt all over the world over recent years. And in part, we say, well, it's because it's, it's been too easy to get credit. Go back. It was a very different story in the 1970s. So uh, we had high tax, for example. Um, you know, the, in the 70s, income tax had a top rate of 80%, 90% or more uh, for, for investment income. So if you were investing, some people uh, said, you know, that's the reason why we had uh, low levels of investment in the, in the 1970s. The, the economy slowed because there was such a hefty impost on those people who were making money from investments. So if, you're, if, you, if you've got a high taxing government that's saying, well, if, you, if you're making money from investments, we're going to tax you heavily on that. People, went, uh, people clearly weren't borrowing to invest because there wasn't much incentive to do it. So, so how did... Well, there was actually... There was actually I, I, I know what happened in Australia because of course I was there. Mm. Um, and from 73 to 75, we had a... It was a mid-75. We had an enormous construction boom. Uh, it was actually the, the building. People know... Have anybody been to King's Cross in Australia? They know there's a whole bunch of apartments along a street at the back of the, at King's Cross uh, associated with those. It happens with a, with a speculator called Frank Thienan and uh, Victoria Street riots and stuff like that over the building of that, the demol- demol- demolishing old buildings and, and building those modern ones was a major part of the, the political scene in the 1970s in Australia. Something similar had to have happened in the UK, and I'm going to, have to identify what it is, because, again, looking at this data, I see credit go from 3% of GDP in... in um, uh, 1971-72 to 15%. So that's a pretty dramatic increase, particularly when you when you realise that at the same time the level of 
level of debt, which uh, I define credit as the annual change in debt, and and um, debt has, of course, the amount you know at a particular point in time. The level of debt back then was about 60, certainly less than 70% of GDP. So in one or two, one and a half, two years, that level was was increased by a one-third increase in that debt level. Uh, that's huge. So there was some big boom going on at the same time as you had a collapse in your export surplus from plus two to minus four. So they set the scenes for what actually happened with the increase in government spending. And the increase in government spending was driven because suddenly those, I agree those tax rates are completely excessive. It's a crazy level of tax. It does reflect that old-fashioned socialist view of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but you had a collapse in tax revenue anyway because of the downturn in the economy. You had a huge fall in your reserves of American dollars. And this is why they made the mistake of going to the IMF and then the IMF comes in on top of that. Government spending responded because with a fall in revenue and an increase in unemployment benefits and so on, you simply have to run a larger government deficit. That's just uh, the you know, it swings and roundabouts effects. But the real disaster, uh, and I don't know, I've got to look back and, and see what I regard this as necessary. Why did they ask the IMF? Why didn't they borrow for the uh, trade deficit they're running on the private bond markets? Because that was, after all, after we'd had the abolition of the... Uh, of the gold standard, but it was in the very, very early days. So, and in, in that reason, it, it wasn't possible as much as it is now to borrow internationally. They did, you didn't have the same developed bond markets we have now. So that probably forced the British economy, the government, British government people got to borrow from the IMF, and then they walked right into the into the jaws of the tiger. Well, maybe people wouldn't want to buy those bonds. You know, maybe, I mean, because if you look at the share market, I know well, it's that, different that, to the bond market, yeah. but the share market, obviously, uh, the, the, the FTSE at the, it was at 67 at the end of 1974. That's 70% less than it was two years before. It was a, a cataclysmic oh. fall in the value of shares. And obviously that uh, was, you know, that's a concern to anyone who's tied into shares, either directly or through pension funds and the like. And I guess, yep. again, you get to that stage, don't you, where people go, particularly in this day and age where more people are, uh, you know, linked to shares in one way or another, some sort of Corbyn unrest could see that similar unrest that we saw in the 1970s return. That's the big fear, isn't it? Yeah, but the reason that fear won't apply is that um, because with the, with the bond markets we have now, with floating exchange rates being the absolute rule these days where they're very, very early in development uh, just when the crisis hit the UK back in the in the 70s. There are bond markets. There are massively well-developed bond markets. And if you're issuing bonds in your own currency, uh, there's no problem at all with servicing it. The problem is when you issue a bonds and you have those bonds in a foreign currency, particularly in the UK's case, the problem was it was issuing bonds uh, in American dollars. And therefore, the question is, well, do you expect they're going to be able to repay the American dollars? Because to repay the American dollars, you have to run a trade surplus. You have to earn those American dollars somehow. Or you've got to buy them with English currency, which might be depreciating. So they're all, they're all those issues. So issuing bonds in American dollars when, you're, when you have the English pounds, that is probably part of it. Again, the same probably because I've got to really go and do the, do the, re, do the research and reading on this. So that's probably part of what occurred back in the 1970s, but the real mistake was getting yourself on the clutches of the IMF. And I'm saying that from having spoken to some IMF economists very recently about the adjustment programs they, they brought in and what was lying behind them. 
and I'm, you know, I'm obviously I'm a critic of mainstream economics. Are you really? Still I mean, you know, I've never, I've never yeah. picked that up. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> just, 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 you know, it's never, ever. I never, I never, ever given them enough credit for how bad they can be because the documents on which they were basing their proposals. Admit I'm looking at a document from the 80s here, uh, but they were the most simplistic models. And what these simplistic models basically took growth as exogenous, uh, saw a mechanical relationship between the value of money, amount of money in circulation and the price level, uh, fed into the into a set of equations that if any student had to me these days, I'd fail them uh, on, on the mechanics of the economy, and then berated the governments to achieve the various targets that were built into these models. Mm. So these are the IMF... Uh, looking at adjustment with growth, relating the analytical approaches of the World Bank and the IMF, a paper by Mojin Khan, Peter Montiel and Nadim Haak um, from the mid-80s. And I have good authority that this is the document they are still using in the models that they impose on countries like Greece. And fundamentally what England experienced, UK experienced in the 1970s with the treatment Greece is getting today from the IMF. Right. So the way to solve uh, a lack of spending in the private sector is to ensure that you've also got a lack, lack of spending in the public sector. So no one's spending any money and that's somehow going to solve the situation. That, that, that sort of thing. That's right. Trying. It's going to fix everything up. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful theory. So we had stagflation in the 70s. I mean, that was the, that was the, the thing that yeah. I guess most people remember. Inflation was high, <laughs> growth was low, yeah. un- unemployment wasn't a big issue. We haven't got that now. I mean, we've got inflation is low now. Growth is also low, and unemployment mm. is you know is, is is tinkering along nicely. But we don't have that inflation issue. So what was what was it that drove inflation in the seventies that we somehow uh, are not seeing in this day and age? If the rest of the circumstance, i.e., high growing um, uh, private debt, is pretty much the same as it was. The large changes that we went from a booming economy to a slumping one in the in 1973-74 globally, and this is again something which people, if if you only have your own country experience to go on, you tend to blame on what actually your your own government did at the time. But I'll I'll take Australia's case just to show to the UK uh, audience just how global this phenomenon was. You certainly can't blame. Was it the Callan government back then? I don't know my yeah. UK government. Yeah, yeah James Callan, Prime Minister. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can't blame the Callanan government for what happened in Australia. I hope that's non-controversial. Um, the unemployment rate in Australia in 1973 was 1%. The unemployment rate in 1974-75 was 5%. So it was a five-fold increase in the unemployment rate, a huge fall in the number of people in a job. The biggest crisis that Australia had experienced at that stage um, up on, uh, from, the 19, from the Great Depression itself and this is repeated across the world. America had not as big an increase in unemployment, but a similar, like 50% or 100, between 50% and doubling the unemployment rate in the early 1970s. And what you had was a global credit bubble, again, largely focused on commercial and real estate, commercial real estate in Australia's case. I presume the same in the UK and to some extent the USA. Yeah. Burst in the mid-70s. And then that was the point where you went from debt credit being a small... The you know, positive part of the aggregate demand to a too large and too volatile part of aggregate demand, and, and that to me, I've, I've always made the 1970s my break between when capital was financially robust, as Minsky put it, and when it was financially fragile. So I think even though Minsky chose 66, that to me the real date that that fragility began on was 1972-74, and that's when the UK had its crisis.
Right, you mentioned unemployment there. I mean, of course, the 1970s is also a period that was characterized by the, the strength of the unions, particularly the miners' union, uh, which Margaret Thatcher, of course, then tackled. Um, and uh, look, look, you know, we, we had relatively low unemployment through most of the 70s. Actually, it was after Margaret Thatcher took mm. control and uh, started to quash the unions yeah. uh, that we started to see unemployment rise. So it wasn't really a big issue during the uh, mid-70s, but it became an issue in the 80s. Yeah, and you also, I mean, the other thing about the unemployment rate and the strength of the unions, again, that was a global phenomenon still into the 1970s. So back in Australia, the unions were demanding and getting, because of the inflation level, uh, wage raises of 17 to 20% per annum. And the union movement had the experience of seeing that eroded in real terms by the inflation rate at the same level. So the, uh, the Australian arguments about the government getting together with the trade unions and managing wage demand so that inflation was reduced. That also came out of the 1970s experience. So I know that the UK had its own special experiences with the miners' strikes and so on. But again, that phenomenon of, um, of very strong unions, very high wage increases, very high inflation, uh, was something which is common across the globe. So again, identifying it just with the fact that there was Labor government in power at the time and that particular Labor government. Again, I can understand why people do it, um, because it's all the information they had to go on. But historically, it was a global phenomenon of a booming economy finally reaching the level where the, the credit component of that uh, began to falter, and you had a, a, a downturn in demand globally, which forced government spending up. The UK just happens to be doubly unlucky because it went from a trade surplus of 2% of GDP in 1972 to minus four in 1974, and that forced clutches of the IMF to raise the to get, borrow the American dollars to enable it to continue trading. And then the IMF policies, uh, which of course were confronting a, a very strong trade union movement at the time as well, that led to a huge part of the chaos you had in this particular country. So, uh, oil obviously had a big impact on all of this as well. I mean, how much of... I mean, it was just, I guess, it was the perfect storm, wasn't it? Because, I mean, we had the three-day week here. Uh, TV went off at 10 o'clock at night, which is, uh, you know, we wouldn't miss that now because there's nothing on anyway. Uh, in, in lots of ways, it was, a, it was a bad time, but a big chunk of that was oil prices skyrocketing. And obviously, that, that had an impact on inflation as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, the, the, what they, what they, the oil price rise... Again, this is where the timing is really important. The oil price rises with the end of 73, beginning of 74. You had a quadrupling of oil prices around the... Was it Yom, the Yom Kippur War? Was that October 1973? Yep, the 6th of October, 1973. Okay, okay. That, was, that was when the oil price rises began shortly afterwards. Now, all the, 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 the crisis we're talking about began before then. So what, what the oil price rise did, which was it increased from $2.5 a barrel roughly to $10 a barrel, so a fourfold increase in oil prices... That came after the bubble had already started to burst. And what it meant was you had no choice but to pay those prices to stay in production. That kept the inflationary surge going that was happening from the high wage rises as well, itself driven by the high employment levels that occurred up until when the crisis began. And therefore, you had stagnant, you had an economy collapsing because the level of investment had plunged. Uh, the increased amount of money going to workers and bankers when capitalists were getting far less than they expected they weren't investing. The economy stagnates because of lack of investment. And then you had the inflation on top of that, partly the momentum of the inflation from the high wage demands up to and including 73, 74. What that meant was the inflation actually reduced the private debt burden. And so what you had was an inflationary 
correction to Aminsky and crisis with a lower level of private debt than we have now. What we're facing now is, uh, with the deflationary tendencies that are actually, in my opinion, innate to capitalism, but amplified by the entry of, of China into the world market as well, those deflationary forces, plus the increase in private debt, which itself is deflationary, I mean, you get to the point now where you have very weak, very weak unions, even with unemployment apparently being low in this country, very uh, low wage rises, and what's actually happened is, as I argue, technically the, the burden of the higher debt has fallen on workers rather than on capitalists, which is what it, it tends to do in the complex system in which we live called capitalism. And with that deflation, there's no way you're going to get an inflationary surge coming out of any level of government spending in the future uh, until such time as we reduce the debt burden, which in the UK's case has gone from about 60% of GDP in the 1970s to 170% now. Uh, at those levels, 195% of its peak, at those levels, you're not you're just not going to get workers getting large amounts of large wage rises. You're not going to get inflation. So the fears people have about the 70s being repeated, the circumstances are so different that they won't repeat. Mm. Um, and yet, and you, yet, the dilemma you, you, yeah. yet we see the remedy right. as being pretty much the same, don't we? So Margaret Thatcher supposedly was the, the hero that took us out of the 1970s. We were moving from a manufacturing economy to a services economy, and uh, many would argue that you know she accelerated that process. Rather than clutching to our old, unprofitable ways, she uh, made sure a whole load of industries closed down. Uh, she didn't really ensure there was anything there to replace them, which is why unemployment basically doubled during the uh, the the Thatcher years in terms of absolute numbers of people who aren't working. Uh, but uh, but also, you know, she introduced this idea of austerity. You know, let's let's live within our means as a way of trying to solve the problem. You know, because we had a, a big uh, a private debt problem, let's, um, let's reduce public debt. And um, that, that seems to be the approach that we're seeing today. Yeah, and it was equally, unfortunately, equally invalid in both cases because austerity is not a solution to a problem caused by ineffective, inadequate demand because your saving is one for one. If nothing else, nothing else changes, if you save money, that actually causes an equivalent fall of national income because your expenditure becomes somebody else's income. Yeah. If you expend less, you're necessarily reducing somebody less's income. Um, so austerity actually, if it's intended to reduce a debt ratio, which is what the people are doing it to do, it'll probably keep the ratio constant or maybe even increase it because it reduces GDP by exactly as much as savings are done. And then if turnover of money is generated in that GDP, uh, with a sufficient level of turnover of that, of that money, you actually get an increase in the debt ratio out of austerity, not a fall. But I mean, but so, there is this fear, isn't there, that uh, the Jeremy yeah. Corbyn's policies, you know, they've been called sheer fantasy because uh, the argument is we're not going to be able to afford them. And if he tries to enact them, we're going to see the economy collapse and we're going to return to how we were in the 70s. But again, that is because people are saying, yes, he's going to push up the level of, uh, of, of government debt. Uh, and that's less of an issue than the level of private debt, which, as you've said, is uh, astonishingly high. I mean, presumably it's higher now. Than, well, we know it's a lot higher now proportional to GDP than it was in the 70s, for example. Yeah, in the 70s, it's the order of 60% of GDP. Uh, since the financial crisis, it's been of the order of 190% of GDP. And that, uh, that rise in private, that all occurred under Thatcher and, and Blair. And, uh, and, and that's really the determining dynamics 
of the experience we had both in leading up to 2008 and 2008 and subsequently. So to actually recreate the situation of the 1970s, the precursor to actually get back to be able to have that problem again, is to reduce the private debt by a factor of by a factor of two thirds. Now that's unfortunately not even on on Jeremy Corbyn's agenda as yet. So um, there's no possibility we'll repeat what happened in the 1970s. We need to actually properly understand what happened back then and to pull that apart in great detail. And I'm going to do that as part of an extensive blog post when I clear my current decks, which are going to keep me working on other papers, unfortunately, for the next month or so, I think. Right. But so, I mean, so the, the, the takeouts, though, I mean, first of all, the 1970s was, as is often the case, it, you know, it, it was a global issue that uh, seems to have been treated as a, as a local concern. It was a combination, yeah. of, a combination of circumstance, uh, perhaps little to do uh, with the unions, little to do with uh, inflation caused by union pressure. It was other circumstances at play, of which oil was part of it, but rising debt was a far more significant one. And, and these concerns were global, not isolated to the UK. So it, if it's the circumstances of the 70s, not the policies of the 70s, that caused the 1970s. Yeah, and at the same time, you've got to say some of those policies were wrong. So a marginal tax rate of 90% is just crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's going to, going to encourage tax evasion no matter what. So uh, I can understand people having a negative attitude. But I think Jeremy that. Corbyn is calling the, for that. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not. Again, people, it, it's, it, it's potential... Um, you know, the hyperbole plays a major role in people's political decision-making, and that's one of those classic instances. Uh, I think we'll have to calm down a bit and look at what actually happened, both then and what's being proposed now, to say, well, it's, uh, we're not going to find ourselves in, in the 1970s again if we elect a guy who was uh, <laughs> old enough to have experienced it. Yeah, yeah. All right, and lots was good about the seventies as well. You know, we've been we've been talking down the nineteen seventies. The nineteen seventies was the the decade of the Who, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Roger Daltrey. We VCRs. Um, we didn't know. It took the eighties for us to try and figure out how to program them, but they came out in the nineteen seventies. Uh, microwave ovens, clock radios, bean bags. Yeah, not sure about that. Stephen Hawking discovered black holes in the nineteen seventies. It was a pretty good, apart from flared trousers. It was a pretty good decade, wasn't it? It had some positives too, which people tend to, to get with the, the panic about it being uh, all due to government policy. No, no, it was due to the bursting of a private debt bubble. There's a Minsky explanation to that uh, involving stagflation uh, coming out of both an investment boom collapsing and then wage pressures coming through and cost of, and, and uh, resource pressures coming through and maintaining it. If we hadn't had the stagflation, we may well have had a moderate economic crisis back then. We're simply glad to have a much bigger one and much better one now. All right. Finally, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think uh, do you think we're going to go for an autumn election in this country? I think it's. I don't think May's got a hope in hell of surviving another three months. Um, she's I mean, clearly the the conservatives. The last thing I want her is to run another election campaign, given what a, a total stuff up she made of this one. So she's not going to make it to the next election. The question is, when does she get shafted? And uh, I think. My feeling is that people are going to say, well, we've got somebody who's pretending to be a Brexiter, which is her, versus somebody who was actually a Brexiter, which is Boris. Um, and God help us. You, you, might as well have, you, know, you might as well have somebody in charge who believes in it as somebody who doesn't. So Boris's potential uh, capacity to argue who should have been made the Conservative leader after Cameron resigned it improved. And that, I, think, I think what he's just saying is that, you know, he, he wants to spend more time with his family. Yeah. Is that what he's saying right now? Yeah. Boris is saying that. Yes, Minister, some. 
No, but I'm sure he would be. You know, I mean, if you remember the wonderful Yes Minister show, somebody was saying that it's obvious to say they were running for Prime Minister. Well, if he uh, if he was to take to ironing his shirts and tucking them in, that would be quite nice when he's on a world stage, wouldn't it? Uh, look, we wait with bated breath to see who does take control. Uh, good to talk anyway, Steve. Okay, mate. Thank you. Boris Johnson. Just when you thought uh, things couldn't get any worse. So the 70s, Corbyn couldn't take us back there if he wanted to. It was very little to do with policy, more to do with global private debt levels, just like the last crisis and the next one. Bit of a recurring theme, isn't it? Yet we always look at cutting government spending as the answer. Free education, one of uh, Corbyn's uh, policies. That would free up debts we get at uh, university. That would give us a bit more spending power later on in life. That's one immediate benefit from his approach. More next time. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe at debunkingeconomics.com or on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Prof Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.